five different problems Paul is tackling in 1 Corinthians. One of them will not take well, and so he will have to write 2 Corinthians and spend almost the whole letter of 2 Corinthians addressing it. And it's this one here in the first four chapters. Because you see, the Corinthian people were connoisseurs of orators. They prided themselves in understanding and knowing what made a good speaker. They set up whole judging contests of rhetoric and oratory. And then when they became Christians, they took that same standard and brought it into the church. Here's what makes a great speaker and all all these criteria. And Paul says, look, I'm not going to fit your criteria. I'm sorry. And that's not really what matters to God. And so in chapter 3, he tells you what matters. It's the fact that Paul and the apostles are fellow laborers in God's field. And then he says this, starting in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged or critiqued, by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge or critique myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so Paul's primary point is in those first two verses. We're stewards of God, and stewards must be found faithful. Keep that concept in your head. For now, we turn to 1 Chronicles, chapters 22 through 28. Yes, we will do it. We can do it, Bob the Builder, right? 1 Chronicles 22 through 28. I'll spend almost all my time in chapter 28, but I need to move there, okay? And so that starts on page 351. This all comes after what you saw in chapter 21, where David has has crashed and burned, as it were, and then the, the three waves of his confession of sin, and then God comes with his fitting justice and his undeserved mercy there at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And there he pours out with the angel of Yahweh right there. There he pours out on that, on that altar and that substitute he pours out his, ju- his fitting justice so that the door of undeserved mercy stays wide open for his people. And so in chapter 22, verse 1, David says, it's here, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, where all of this happened. The temple will be built. And so now starting in chapter 22 is moving towards that direction. David cannot build the temple. He's not going to be allowed to, but he's going to get r- things ready. And so in chapter 22, he commissions both Solomon and the leaders to be faithful to the Lord and to build the temple. And so, for example, you get down to verse 11 of chapter 22. Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of Yahweh your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may Yahweh grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of Yahweh your God, then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that Yahweh commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not and be not dismayed or do not be dismayed. 
And he just goes on laying out the things that he has given Solomon so that he can do the work. And then all of chapter 23, which begins then with verse 1. When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. David is at the end of his life. And so the, all the rest of chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27 is David piling up men and material to build the temple. He even sets up in chapter 27 all of his military units to protect God's people. But that's all he's doing is he's preparing everything because he knows he's handing it all over to the next generation. And so then comes chapter 28. And here's where I'm going to spend all of this morning. And so David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king, and his sons together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. And then David addresses the leaders, and he addresses the people. And he tells them to keep faith. And he explains, and I'll I'll get into it deeply. But notice verse 5. And of all my sons, for Yahweh has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. It's the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. It's not David's kingdom. It's not Solomon's kingdom. It's the Lord's kingdom. And Solomon is set underneath the Lord here. And so David then goes on and challenges Solomon, starting in verse 9, and he gives him the same thing. It's the Lord who searches the heart and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, etc. And then, in verse 10, he goes on to say, And so, therefore, build the house. And he tells him specific instructions on how to build the house, and the reason why is down in verse 19. All this he made clear to me, in writing from the hand of Yahweh all the work to be done according to the plan. And then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong. Now ask yourself this question before I read it. Where have you heard these words before? Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until the work for the service of the house of Yahweh is finished. And so he ends his charge to Solomon. All that I read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what I've summarized and read for you in 1 Chronicles 22 through 28, dear friends, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord God, open our eyes to its leading and by your Holy Spirit and for the honor of Christ Jesus, your Son and our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're visiting, on the back of the worship guide um, are the sermon notes there. You can see there's lots of space for you to write those notes. There's also a whole host of scripture references that I'll be bumping up against or referring to as we go through the, the sermon. You can see those there. And then questions at the end for you. So when I was a teenager in Moore, Oklahoma, I got a job at Pizza Hut, the one on 89th and Penn. I don't know if it's still there. Every time I drive by that corner, I don't dare look. But anyways, but I was working at Pizza Hut there at 89th and Penn. And one day, the manager, probably to get me out of her hair, 
decided to send me to another Pizza Hut store that was under minimal manning. There was just a manager at the other store and one waitress. There was nobody else, and it was rush hour time, right? If you've ever worked at a food service, you, you know what that means. It's like, it's not even controlled chaos. It's just chaos, right? So she sent me over there so I could add some extra manpower over there. And as I got there, I asked the manager at the other Pizza Hut store, I said, what do you want me to do? And she gave me very, very specific orders. Just wash the dishes. They were piling up. We're running out and we need to have them washed. Just go in there and wash the dishes. That was my charge. She gave me a charge. Do this. And it was very clear. Don't get distracted by doing other things. Just do the dishes. So keep that little picture in the back of your head as we move along here in this passage. Here we are now in chapters 22 through 28, and specifically we're going to focus on 28. We're coming out of the turnaround in chapter 21. And there in that turnaround where David sought to repent of particular sins particularly. And God came and brought mercy where there was fitting justice being poured out. And there at that place, chapter 22, verse 1, at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, now that becomes the place where God's temple will be built and where all of God's people from now on, or from then on, would be able to come to meet God and find, instead of fitting justice, find undeserved mercy. And so David is making provisions, but he's making provisions for the future to bring revival and reformation forward. He may have gone out weeping, chapter 21, but by the grace and mercy of God, he has now come home with shouts of joy, chapter 22, all the way to actually chapter 29. So look at that outline, just briefly look at it, and you'll notice how it fits. This whole section is one package. I'm not going to get into details here, but if you pay attention to the way I have it worded, and you look at the passage itself, the whole section, you will realize it is one package, and it has, therefore, woven into it some thematic concepts. It's a thematic movement, if you will, that the Spirit-directed historians and writers of First and Second Chronicles were focusing on. It's a very simple set of themes. So if you keep that in mind, then I think we'll be safe to just move past chapter 22 all the way into 28 today and then 29 next Sunday. So the basic theme is keep the faith. That's chapter 28. But its sister theme is 29, contribute freely. Keep the faith, 28, contribute freely. 29, and all of that as a result growing out of God coming in with his, there at the place of fitting justice, coming in with undeserved mercy. And from there comes this, keep the faith, contribute freely. Well, we'll get to 29 next week. And so keep the faith, very simple, right here in chapter 22 and then 28. And you'll notice kind of a structure. The structure is almost the same in 22 and 28. If you've ever been to a Presbyterian ordination and installation service, and by the way, we have one coming at the end of August for elders and deacons, 
Next Sunday, I'm going to Minko in the evening to go install the new pastor there, Jason Avril. And if you've ever been to one of our ordination installation services, you see something very peculiar. There's a biblical backdrop to what we do, and it's right here in chapter 28, the way this is structured. Once a man or men are ordained as deacons and elders and pastors, once the man is ordained, then a leader gives a charge. Just like that Pizza Hut manager gave me a charge. Wash the dishes! Right? The leader gives a charge to the one ordained and installed, and then a leader gives a charge to the congregation. And that's the pattern you see in chapter 28. There's a charge from David to Solomon... Uh, First off, excuse me, to the leaders and the led, and then there's a charge to Solomon. It's a very biblical pattern. And so Solomon is being established as king, therefore the people are being challenged to to fidelity and loyalty. That's verses 1 through 8. And the newly installed king is being entrusted with the kingdom, with the temple building project, and with keeping the faith also, 9 through 21. That pattern is almost identical in chapter 22. It's just in the other direction. Who gets charged first? But it's almost identical as chapter 28. But the whole point of either chapter 22 and 28 is this. You've been entrusted with a stewardship. And stewards are to be found faithful, 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, keep the faith. So let's break this down and listen in as David speaks to the leaders and the people first, and then he speaks to Solomon. So he commissions the leaders and the people, verses 1 through 8, and then he's going to commission Solomon, 9 to the end of the chapter. So in verses 1 through 8, as he's commissioning the leaders and the people, David reminds them why he is not allowed to build the temple. On a man of blood, the Lord said, you will not build my house, so I'm not going to build him a house. I can't build him a house. He won't let me. And then starting in verse 4, God's promise. I know, David, you wanted to build my house, but you're not going to build my house. Instead, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your dynasty, verses 4 through 7. And so David then turns in verses 5 through 8, and he charges the leaders, and he charges the led to keep faith with God. Which will mean they're to keep faith with Solomon, whom God has enthroned. So look again at verse 5 and how, God, how David puts it. Yahweh has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh. It's not Solomon's kingdom. It's not David's kingdom. It's the Lord's kingdom. It's the same in church. Heritage is not my church. It's not our elders' church. Now we're responsible for it. We may use the my language, but the church belongs to whom? The Lord. It's the Lord's church, right? And so here in this context, keeping faith then with Solomon is keeping faith with God. Remember, what is God going to say? He promised he's going to say this to David's offspring. I will be his son, or he will be my son, and I will be his father. And so to receive the son is to receive the father. Does this sound familiar? Didn't somebody else say that somewhere? He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the words that I speak are not my words, but the words of the one who sent me. Right? Does anybody remember who that is? Who is that? 
Jesus! Yes, you have a picture here already of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that close connection. Receiving the Son, you're receiving the Father. Being loyal to the Son, you're being loyal to the Father. And that's what David is stressing here. You want to be loyal to Yahweh, and so being loyal to Yahweh means being loyal to Solomon. And then in verse 8, which I didn't read to you, but verse 8, he goes on to say, Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel... The assembly of Yahweh, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek all the commandments of Yahweh your God that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. I'm going to come back to that last statement in just a second. And so as you look at the charge that David gives to the leaders in the lead, there's three things at least we can pull out of here that we need to pull out. And I want to stop right here in the sermon and pull them out. (laughs) First off, my friends, for the kingdom to work, it arises and must always remember that it's arising in its work out of chapter 21. God's steadfast love, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. All of this work comes not to get God's favor. It comes as a result of and response to God's favor. Does that make sense? First comes chapter 21 before you can get to 22 through 28. And so all the things that we do are not to impress God, not to build up our curriculum vitae, our resume, so that God gets in heaven, is in heaven, and he goes, wow, I'm so glad Rincey's on my team. How impressive she is. Woo! Right? None of that. What we do is a result of what you heard in the assurance of pardon. The wages of sin is death. What did we deserve? Death, doom, and damnation. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everything from that point on is simply hallelujah. And that's what is happening here. For the kingdom to work. It arises out of God's steadfast love, forgiveness, and grace. Secondly, for the kingdom to work, notice it's a team effort. He calls on the leaders and the led, the whole assembly of Yahweh. It's a team effort. It's not a 2080 rule effort or a 95-5 rule. That's always my impression in churches is that usually it's 5% of the people do 95% of the work, right? It's not a 95-5, it's an all-hands-on-deck. Revival and Reformation move forward because it's an all-hands-on-deck project. For God's congregation to thrive, we all have a place, we all have a role, we are all to be engaged. You heard it in 1 Corinthians 12 that we read before the confession of sin when Paul was talking about The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit giving gifts to all of his people. Not to 20%, not to 5%, but to 100%. And as he gives gifts to 100%, he tells you what they're for. He says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And that doesn't mean you're going to be out front up here, talking up here, or, or teaching Bible classes per se, or whatever. It just, you're, you're involved somewhere, right? You just participate. Does anybody remember Teen Hurst? Come on, track with me here a minute. Anybody remember Cheryl Svetgall? 
Anybody remember Gary Peabody? They are totally like not upfront people, you know what I mean? And they were fully engaged, quietly, in different ways. They participated. I mean, after my walk in the kitchen, Ting Hurst's ghost is tapping me on the shoulder saying, Pastor, put that in the right drawer. Right? Doesn't mean you're out front, but you're just, you're involved. It's an all hands on deck. For the kingdom to work, it's a team effort. Thirdly, and this goes with that last line of verse 8 that I pointed out to you. For the kingdom to work, it has, it has a view beyond our moment to the next generation. I was so delighted when um, Pamela was telling me last week what the song was going to be for the, the a cappella quartet. I was like, whoa, that fits right into the sermon. That was easy. Thank you, Lord. That was awesome, right? Passing on to the next generation. For the kingdom to work, it has a view beyond our moment to the next generation. It doesn't ignore our moment, but it's not obsessed with our moment. It's always with a view to the future. That's what David says here and what David was actually practicing. To leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. Which is what David is doing in chapters 22 through 28. He is leaving this as an inheritance to go on beyond his day and age. So that the kingdom just keeps right on chucking, so to speak. Or trucking or chugging or whatever you want to say. Right? Christianity is very much a next-generation religion. It's not ignoring the present generation, but it's a very much a next-generation religion. In a sense, something we learned in the military, we had to practice this in the military in the 20 years I was in, in a sense, you're always supposed to be training your replacements. Anybody going to be here alive, standing in that body right now in about 35 years? Some of you will. Most of us won't, or many of us won't. We're always to be training, training our replacements, handing things over, helping them, calling them in, incorporating them. Now, it happens all the time here. I love it. Like when I get to walk in and the sewing class is going on on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Here's, here's Dee and Cindy and Pamela and whoever else. There's several of you that show up. And there's these young girls and you're passing on things like sewing. Woo! Awesome. That's great. And then the other day, we were, uh, some of the ladies came to help Pamela with the crafts for when we get ready to go to Carnegie. And there were like eight adults in there and three kids. Sweet! Right? We're always training our replacements. Some of them will be replacements sooner than later, depending on how long we live. You know what I'm saying? But that's normal. That's biblical. That's the right way to go. In fact, that's what... David, or Paul, tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, before he dies, he tells Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In fact, it's what Paul practiced. He didn't just say it, he practiced it. Why do you think Paul took Timothy and Titus and other young men with him while he was out traveling? Some of it was companionship. Some of it was probably preservation security, you get on some of those highways and those banditos can get you. But you notice the way Paul treats Timothy, you realize, oh, Paul spent years bringing the next generation along with him and teaching him so he could leave the church in his hands for him to continue on. It's just a biblical concept. And it's right that it fits in with the song we just heard. Remembering and passing it on. 
We could go further, but we'll stop there at that part. So David then, after commissioning the leaders and the lead, he then commissions his son. And it's verses 9 through 21. It's very simple. Verse 9. It's really keep the faith. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For Yahweh searches all hearts. He understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Verse 10, and by the way, build the temple. Right? That's verse 9 and 10, which is really the heart of this whole chapter. Keep the faith. Now David is waning. His days are coming to an end. I already read to you chapter 23, 1. But if you go back to chapter 26 and verse, I think, 31, it says this was all happening in the 40th year of David's reign. And if you know your Bible history, you realize, oh, David's about out the door. And he's putting all this into place. And these are the words then of a father who knows his days are coming to an end. Think of how valuable those words are. Coming from a father to his, chil- to his children, from parents to their children, especially when it's the last, their last days. Hey, if you remember anything else, if you remember n- nothing else, here's what I want you to remember, son. Here's what I want you to remember, sweetheart. Know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. Because he knows your heart better than you do, better than your mom and dad do. He understands every one of your plans and thoughts and the ones you don't even understand. You seek him, he's just right there. He'll be found by you. So notice then that David, as he tells him to keep the faith, verse 9, notice what he does. He emphasizes who God is. He starts out by pointing out that he's my God. Know the God of your father. But a little bit later, when you get down to verse 20 of chapter 28, he goes on to show that that, that this is also Solomon's God. He will say, for Yahweh God, even my God, is with you. So he begins by emphasizing who God is. He's my God and he's your God. And he's the God who searches hearts. And he understands plans and thoughts. He searches hearts. He knows us better than anyone else. Even the NSA. Come on, laugh with me here. He knows us better than anyone. He knows our hearts. He understands every plan of thought. This is who God is. That's why Psalm 139 was the last two verses were part of was the call to worship. Because if you go read all of Psalm 139, it's a cheering thought. That's David's point in Psalm 139. You can get lost behind the brick walls at a nursing home or a memory care facility. But guess what? You ain't lost. He knows you. He knows you better than anyone in that facility and your own family does. You get it? That's Psalm 139. He knew you when you were in the womb and your mama didn't even know you were there yet. He knows you better than anyone Wow, it's exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
So here's who God is. And then David goes on, because of that, because of who God is, then he says to Solomon, he says, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. With a whole heart, not a half heart. And a willing mind, not a grudging mind. Don't all of us parents... Don't all of you parents long for this for your children? Christian parents? They would serve God with a whole heart and willing-minded service. Not drudgery. Not forced compliance. Not foot-dragging observance. No. A happy all-in. Lord, may our kids serve you with a happy all-in from now until kingdom come. A Christian parent doesn't want that. In fact, David will turn verse 9 into a prayer when you get to chapter 29, which I'll talk about more next week. But just glance over to chapter 29, verse 19. When David is praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Israel. And then he says, verse 19, Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep, your commandments, your testimony, statutes, performing all, and that he may build a place, etc. Grant him a whole heart and a willing mind. He turns it into a prayer. And then in his charge comes this double-sided good news, bad news promise. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, but if you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. Let's stop here just a minute with that good news bad news promise. Because some people hear that good news, bad news promise and they think, oh, that's scary. And it, I guess in a sense it should be scary to sense. Unless you realize it's a promise based on the God of chapter 21. And then you realize it's meant to encourage. But it's going to become a theme in Second Chronicles. You're going to start hearing it all the way through Second Chronicles. Forty years after this, Roboam, Solomon's son, is going to go off the rails a little bit. A whole bunch. And the prophet's going to come to him and say, because you forsook Yahweh, he is now forsaking you. Some years later, good King Asa. The prophet will come to him and say, here's the promise to you, Asa. You seek him, he'll be found by you. You forsake him, he'll cast you off. And then many years after that, Joab, who was rescued by the high priest when his mother was going to slaughter him. His thank you to the high priest after the high priest died was to kill all the high priest's sons. There's a sermon there. And so the prophet comes to Joab and says, because you have forsaken Yahweh, he has forsaken you. And we hear those words and we're like, wow, that's Old Testament. No, it's in the New Testament. Because it's part of the God. It's who God is under the Old and New Testament. James chapter 4 verse 8. Draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. Now turn that into the negative because it's implied there. Don't draw near to God. Guess what? He won't draw near to you. It's there. It's a good news, bad news promise. It's there from Old Testament to New Testament. My friends, really what David is doing is giving... Solomon, the 2020 principle. Here we go. You ready? All right, 2 Chronicles 2020. Believe in Yahweh and the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe as prophets, and you will succeed. Okay. You get an F for school today. Sorry. 
Help me out now. Come on, ready? Put your, come on, get your goggles on. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. That's the principle being laid out here. Well, then David then in verse 10 goes on to tell his son to follow God's plans. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 19. And the plan for building the temple was not his preference. It was not David's own prejudices and biases. In fact, in verse 19 it says, it was given to him in writing from the hand of Yahweh. Oh, the Lord actually drew these architectural drawings and gave us the dimensions and told us how all this was to be. Yeah. It's just like hundreds of years earlier when Moses was up on top of Mount Sinai. And while he is there receiving the Ten Commandments, Yahweh says to him, by the way, here's how I want you to build the tabernacle. I'm going to show you the pattern. And I want you to remember this pattern and build everything according to this pattern. He gave him the dimensions and everything. He had to build the tabernacle according to the pattern. And so David is given the same exact thing. And that will be important, not necessarily now, but that will be important when we get to Second Chronicles and we look at the temple in a few weeks. I just needed to point it out to you because it's here. But this is not David's preference. This is his humble submission to God and his directions. And lastly, notice that David, starting when you get down to verse 20 and 21... David encourages Solomon with a Joshua-shaped promise. I asked you, where have you heard these words before? And your mind should have said, Joshua! And I would have said, Gold Star! Exactly. It's a Joshua-shaped promise. Listen again, then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Before Nike took that phrase, David already had it. Just do it. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for Yahweh God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of Yahweh is finished. It's a Joshua-shaped promise. It's just like when Joshua was there on the cusp of entering the promised land and is about to lead the people of God into a new phase of being the kingdom of God when he was about to lead the people of God into a new phase of being the kingdom of God, God comes to him and says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. As, David, as Joshua was about to lead God's people into a new phase of being God's kingdom, he gave him that exact commission. And now David says it to Solomon, who is about to lead the people of God into a new phase of being God's kingdom. He gives him the same commission. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed, because Yahweh is with you. And oh, dear friends... The greater Joshua, the greater than Solomon, the greater son of David also has done the same. As he launched the final new phase of the kingdom, he gave us similar Joshua-shaped promises. And it's in John chapter 14, verse 27, and John 16, 33. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Fear not. Be not dismayed. And then in chapter 16 of John, he went on to say, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Fear not. Be not dismayed. And so David gives him as the last part of his charge to Solomon, that Joshua-shaped promise. And so there you have chapter 28, the commission to the people, the leaders and the people, and the commission given to Solomon. And so the message of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God, as he's working through the writers of 1 and 2 Chronicles, what he's broadcasting to Israel as Israel is coming out from exile. Remember who this is originally written for? Mid-4th century, they're coming out of of multiple generations of being oppressed and disenfranchised and beat down and beat up, and they're slinking their way back home. And so this message is first and foremost to them, but it's not just to them, it's to God's beleaguered people, whether they're in the middle of the 4th century B.C. or 2023. And so his message he's broadcasting is multiple layers to it. So let me give you a few to ponder. I'm going to give you three to ponder. First off, we should see that all of God's people have some role in God's world rescue operation. And even more pointedly, in the local branch of God's world rescue operation, the congregation, we all have a part and we should all do our part. And some of this means to include the next generation. The next generation, raising them up, our vacation Bible school, our Sunday schools, all those things, yes. But the next generation, boomers, the next generation also is now starting to show white hairs. They're called Gen X. And then there's the millennials, and then there's the Zs. I hate those social categories, you know I do, but I'm going to use them right now. The next generation is sitting right there with us. That means to start including them into what we're doing. I know I'm 16 in a 62-year-old body. And I feel the 62 more and more every day. And I know, it was just reminding me, my days are numbered. I mean, really numbered. And I need to be thinking this way. We need to be thinking this way. Everybody, all hands on deck. And that includes bringing in the next generation. The second thing, and this is to you parents. And actually, if you've never been a parent... You're single, you've never been able to have kids. It really involves you as well to some extent. I commend to you David's valuable charge and commission to his son. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For Yahweh searches all hearts and he understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. I commend his charge to you, parents, and other adults. As you look around at these kids, as you pray, for, to, to pray, to pray. To start with those words. Pray for your children. 
Pray for the ones that are still here, little ones running around here, the ones that are starting to grow up and you can't believe they're already going to college. What? And the ones that have moved on. And if you've never had any kids, you've been single, you've never been able to have kids, pray for our kids. Pray for our kids. Join with us. Oh dear God, may these kids, and I watched them grow up in this church, may these kids know you. May these kids serve you with a whole heart and a willing mind. Because God, you know them better than any of us do. May they seek you because you're not far away and know that they found you. Can I get an amen? Amen. Secondly, maybe tell your kids those words. Maybe let them know. Hey, if I die tomorrow, I mean, chances aren't going to happen unless I'm driving. But anyways, so... Right? But if I die tomorrow, I just want you to know this is deep in my heart for you. I want you to know the God of your Father. I want you to serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind. And so forth. And maybe consider making those your last words to your kids before you die. So I commend to you David's charge to Solomon. The last thing is this. This whole chapter calls God's people, wherever they may be, on the chronological landscape, to seek God, to draw near to Him, to come to Him, to approach Him on His terms. And the promise is crystal clear. He will draw near to you. He's not far from any of us. Seek Him. And as we do that, There's this Joshua-shaped promise that is ours. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For Yahweh your God is with you. And how do you know? Because Jesus gave you that promise. And then our Lord Jesus sealed it in his blood the next day after he made that promise. And he guaranteed that promise three days later when he rose from the dead body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, never subject to misery or mortality again, and now sits at the Father's right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords. You have that Joshua-shaped promise given to you. Lift up your hearts. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for what we've read, for the charges given to the leaders and the led, and we pray that we would have ears to hear. And we do pray. We do pray for our children here. We pray for our children that have grown up and moved on. That they would know the God of their fathers, the God of their mothers. And they would serve you, O Lord, with a whole heart and a willing mind because you know them better than anyone. So may they seek you, for they will then find you. In Jesus' name, amen.